When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Ayton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. I sometimes fear that there is an enormous amount of hollowness and unreality in much of the church religion of the present day, and that if weighed in God's balances, it would be found terribly lacking. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We are listening to a sermon from J.C. Ryle. It was preached in the 1880s. Joel, we have done sermons by J.C. Ryle before, and he is a fantastic preacher. It's been a bit uh, since the last one, so I thought we'd kind of go back through him a little bit again. And this sermon is unique. I really like this one because he really uh, calls out what are some problems in his age that I think relate uh, really well to us today, especially about being humble and having a godly lifestyle. So this is a good one, guys. Yeah, J.C. Ryle was born in 1816 in England. His father was very wealthy. In a previous episode, we talked about how his family was doing very well for itself, making a lot of money, a very well-off family. One day, J.C. Ryle woke up and a few investments had gone wrong and the business collapsed. They ended up going bankrupt. That was an important part of his story we talked about before, but looking at Ryle's life, I learned something new about him that I actually didn't know. He was an athlete, and you start to see athletes kind of really showing up around the 1800s, especially for the wealthier people, and uh, Ryle was one of those in the beginning of his life, and he was very good at cricket, and for a super opera simplification for Americans, cricket is kind of like British baseball. Although that's probably not really what it was. The pictures that I looked up for the research. We're not sports guys uh, here at Revive Thoughts. Not so much. And it's nice because 99% of these guys, this is really the first time we've had to worry about a sports guy. And it's a good thing because that British baseball is about as close as we're going to get. So Ryle was really good at British baseball. And when he was at Oxford, he played and he was captain of the team. And he went on to have great success against the other schools that they played. Uh, His family was also a part of something called the Cheshire Society. It's not important at all. It just, they would collect big collections of historical artifacts and show them off. And I, I say all this to tell you, J.C. Ryle uh, was doing well in life in these early days. Um, and he would attend church, but it was very nominal. Uh, I think we'd call him an Easter Christmas a kind of attendance, you know, going for the holidays, a creaster, as they're kind a of known creaster. as. And uh, this was Ryle, his life, until he was midway through college. Everything was going well, um, and he didn't need to really think about deeper things. And maybe you've met people like that. Maybe you have experienced that kind of lifestyle at some point, too. And what's funny is the part of the way 
he got to school was for doing a religious scholarship that he had to write all these thoughts on religion. He won the scholarship. So again, it, it, to me, it was kind of funny because he went to school basically being like, yeah, I'm a super Christian. And in reality, that's not at all really what he was. Yeah, his final year of college during the final exams or in the week of the final exams, he, he became really, really sick. And that might not sound like a big deal to us, but he was top of his class. And so getting sick during finals had a real chance of ruining literally all of the years of work that he'd put into it. And so laying in bed ill, he decided to start reading through the Bible. This once star athlete that had done so much, he, he could now barely breathe in his bed. And and when he had the strength, he stumbled out of bed and went to church to hear more about his faith. And showing up late, he heard the scripture reading of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He said that on the spot he was converted to Christianity, just just like that. Uh, from here, he went back home, and that was when that bankruptcy we mentioned earlier hit his life. And you can just see how this guy who thought he was riding top of the world was destined for just that upper-class society life is just having one thing after another take it away from him. Um, eventually, and it didn't take very long, his family was out of work, and they were out of ideas. He tried to go into the city to get a career in politics, met study in law, becoming a lawyer, and he had promise. He was doing pretty well. But after six months in London, the smog, the pollution of the Industrial Revolution, it caused uh, chest problems to return, the ones he had before. And the doctors were like, you've got to move to the countryside. You've got to get fresh air. You can't stay in the city or you're going to die. Um, but that really only left him one career option, and that was to work at the Church of England for a small parish job. Um, he did it. And to him, it was kind of a last ditch. Well, I guess if I can't do anything else, I can put food on the table by being a clergy. Um, and putting yourself in his shoes in five or so years, um, he went from being the great school athlete, the top of the class guy, the guy that probably every student and everyone was looking up to and thinking he's going to be the one um, to the point that he got so ill, he couldn't move. His family lost all their wealth. Uh, when they lost their wealth, they actually had to move from his hometown. So I'm sure that was very embarrassing, you know, kind of ashamed to leave the mansion, leave it all behind, couldn't get work. And now he's working at this small church out in the countryside. He can't even live in the city. He's so ill from it. This is a huge drop down the social scale, the economic scale. I mean, in every way possible, it just looks like his life has flipped upside down. And yet, in this moment, when he resigns himself to becoming um, just a small-town preacher, that's when God starts to be able to use him, finally. Yeah, I like Ryle because he's a good example of God using someone, and it, it kind of flies in the face of the prosperity gospel, right? This idea yeah. that God's going to bless you and, and give you all this money. Uh, kind of the opposite here. God took away all of the the luxury he had and he never really got it back i mean he always lived a humble life ministering to the people around him and god used him in that but that was his life and and it just kind of goes to show the contentment we have comes from christ it doesn't come from this world that we live in here and the materials that are in this world in the last episode about Ryle, we, we kind of took a, a look deep into his tracks that he would write. He, write, he wrote a lot of tracks and, and got a lot of them published, but for years, they went largely unnoticed. For a decade plus, he was writing tracks, he was writing uh, sermons and books, and they all kind of went under the radar. They, they all kind of went out in silence. 
But he was faithful to his ministry and faithful to the calling. And eventually, when people did start to hear about Ryle and catch on to Ryle, there was already years and years of books and sermons and tracts that he had already prepared in the background previous, which is kind of a neat uh, concept that, that even though we might be doing again for in this case, he worked at these for 10 years before God decided to implement them and use them on a large scale like that. But like we said, he, he never became a rich man. He spent a lot of his life trying to pay back his father's debts on essentially a, a priest's income. I guess depending on what era of church history, a priest's income might be more than others. But during this time, yeah. it was not It was not a, a high salary. It was not a high-paying job. This is the Church of England here. This isn't a, a bishop yeah. pope of the Catholic Church. He also got married... We learned while doing research for this episode that he himself read a lot about the marriages of Whitfield and the Wesley brothers, and he, he really wanted to marry for love, for the right reasons, for a companion, not for status or um, connections, you know, and that was common during this era. Unfortunately, he would get married three times. The women that he would choose and the women that he would love uh, would pass away. And when you take a step back and look at his life and all, it is it is rather tragic. Ryle became a famous preacher as time went on and a teacher, and he eventually would reach many, many people, and he would be seen as one of the last really great beacons of the Church of England. Uh, it was not an easy time to be a Christian in the Church of England. On the one hand, the church was struggling with this kind of idolatry. It was called ritualism, and it was this idea that a lot of people were trying to basically push the Church of England to just just become a church of rituals. Um, don't worry about all this Jesus stuff and doctrine. We're just going to start uh, just going and just doing the practices, and that will be enough. And they actually really wanted it to look more like the Catholic Church. They even literally, one of the people said they brought the bells and the smells of the, the things you'd see in the Catholic Church into the Church of England and said, these, these are enough. What's really funny and kind of strange is that the old-fashioned traditionalists who just wanted the old, you know, the old way of doing things were kind of teaming up with the really open-minded, young, uh, kind of more liberalized people to push this idea of ritualism on the church and uh, some of these younger people were would be the you know future leaders of the christian socialist movement they wanted the church of england to be a part of that and jc ryle kind of looked at all these things and was going no i this is not the best idea for the church of england to do this episode is brought to you by the better samaritan podcast with hosts ken annan and jamie aden the whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better. The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? So we want to make the whole road safer. So that's the that's where we're coming from on this podcast. Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts were in the right place, but because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really want to bring both our, our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts. Yeah, that was a big problem in England at this time, this ritualism 
movement that was going throughout the land. Another issue was this idea of opening up the churches completely and making it more theologically liberal, getting rid of the Bible and doing away with doctrine. And this was also a movement that hit all of the churches, really, in the late 1800s. And Ryle fought hard against it in England. He viewed himself, in a lot of ways, like a missionary. His tracts were meant to convert people to Christ, and his sermons were focused on an England that he believed no longer believed in Christ. In a lot of ways, he viewed everyone in England as needing to be reformed and brought back to the core beliefs. He set up mission halls and urban city centers to help preach the gospel to the poor during the Industrial Revolution. A lot of the reasons Ryle seemed to see in England that he did not think was very Christian goes back to what he, and by the way, we, he doesn't think it's Christian enough. We would look at that as Victorian era England. We go, that's that's not so bad. That's a, sure. He had a lot of good preachers living in that era, but he's going, no, no, no. If I could, yes, you know, we can have these great songs and we can have these great sermons and we may have great, beautiful temples. But if I, if God was here and he could look into the hearts of all these people right now, he's not looking at seeing this great Christian nation. He's seeing a lot of people that need to truly give their lives over to Christ. Enormous luxury, extravagance, self-indulgence, money worship, and an idolatry of fashion and amusements. These are sorrowful marks of our times. With all our outward show of goodness, is there any proportionate increase of internal goodness? With all this immense growth of external Christianity, is there any corresponding growth of vital godliness? Is there more faith, repentance, and holiness among the worshipers in our churches? Is there more of that saving faith without which it is impossible to please God? More of that repentance that leads to salvation without which a man must perish? More of that holiness without which no man will see the Lord? Is our Lord Jesus Christ more known and trusted and loved and obeyed? Is the inward work of the Holy Spirit more realized and experienced among our people? Are the grand truths of justification, conversion, sanctification more thoroughly grasped and rightly esteemed by our churches? Is there more private Bible reading, private prayer, private self-denial, private mortification of the flesh, private exhibition of meekness, gentleness, and unselfishness? In a word, is there more private religion at home in all the relations of life? These are very serious questions, and I wish they could receive very satisfactory answers. I sometimes fear that there is an enormous amount of hollowness and unreality in much of the church religion of the present day, and that if weighed in God's balances, it would be found terribly lacking. For after all, we must remember that it is written, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The great head of the church has said, this people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He has also said, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. If there is one thing more clearly taught than any other in the word of God, it is the utter uselessness of formal outward worship. 
no matter how beautifully conducted. When the hearts of the worshippers are not right in the sight of God, it is nothing. I suspect that the temple worship in the days when our Lord Jesus Christ was upon earth was as perfectly and beautifully performed as possible. I have little doubt that the music, the singing, the prayers, the dress of the priests, the gestures, the postures, the regularity and punctuality of the ceremonial observances, the keeping of the feasts and fasts, were all perfection itself. There was nothing faulty or defective in it. But where was true saving religion in those days? What was the inward godliness of men like Annas and Caiaphas and their companions? What was the general standard of living among the fierce zealots of the law of Moses who crucified the Lord of glory? You all know as well as I do. There is only one answer. The whole Jewish church, with all its magnificent ritual, was nothing but a great white tomb, beautiful on the outside, but utterly rotten and corrupt within. In short, the Jewish church was intended by God to be a beacon to all Christendom, and I am certain that these are days in which its lessons better not be forgotten. We must not be content with what men call bright and hearty services and frequent attendance of the Lord's Supper. We must remember that these things do not constitute the whole of religion, and that no Christianity is valuable in the sight of God, which does not influence the hearts, the consciences, and the lives of those who profess it. It is not always the church and congregation in which there is the best music and singing, and from which young people return saying, how beautiful it was, in which God takes most pleasure. It is the church in which there is most of the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and the congregation in which there are most broken hearts and contrite spirits. If our eyes were only opened to see invisible things, like the eyes of Elisha's servant, we might discover, to our amazement, that there is more presence of the King of Kings, and consequently, more blessing in some humble, unadorned mission room where the gospel is faithfully preached than in some of the grandest churches in the land. There is nothing like testing systems by their results. Let us ask quietly whether there has been any increase of Christian generosity and spiritual mindedness in the land in proportion to the enormous increase of attention to external worship. I am afraid the answer that will be found will not be good. In many cases, the money given by a church to help missions at home and abroad and to promote direct work for the salvation of souls in any way would be found absurdly out of proportion to the money spent on the piano, choir, ferns, flowers, and general decorations. Can this be right? And is this a healthy state of things? Does the annual contribution of money for religious purposes throughout England and Wales in these days of enormously increasing wealth bear any proportion to the gigantic expenditure on racing, hunting, shooting, yachting, elaborate entertainments, fashion, dancing, and the general ways of recreation? Yet all this goes on in the face of an immense increase of external religion. 
I cannot think of this as a symptom of a healthy condition of our souls. I will never forget what an American clergyman said to me not long ago when I asked him what he thought of the state of church religion on revisiting England after an absence of some ten years. He told me in reply that while he saw a great increase in music, singing, and ceremonial religion in our public worship, he could not see the slightest increase, but rather a decrease of true heart among our worshipers. I have a sorrowful suspicion that the American was not far off. The preaching of the pure word of God is the first mark of a healthy church. It is the sound doctrine taught and preached and not ritual, which in every age the Holy Spirit has used for awakening sleeping human consciences, building up the cause of Christ and saving souls. The dens and caves and upper rooms in which the primitive Christians used to meet were doubtless very rough and unadorned. They had no carved wood or stone, no stained glass, no costly decorations, no organs, and no comfortable chairs. But these primitive worshippers were the men who turned the world upside down, and I do not doubt that their places of worship were far more honorable in God's sight. It was well and truly said that in those ancient days, the church had wooden communion vessels, but golden ministers. And it was this which gave the primitive church its power. And when religion began to decay, it was said that the conditions were reversed. The ministers became wooden, and the communion plate golden. But I want everything in the English church in the 19th century to be golden. I long to have everywhere golden ministers, golden worship, golden preaching, golden praying, and golden praise. I want everything in the service of God to be done as perfectly as possible, and no part of it to be skipped, slurred over, done carelessly, and left out in the cold. I charge you affectionately, my fellow brethren in God's service, to make this your aim. Let the best, brightest, and heartiest services be always accompanied by the best and ablest sermons that your minds can produce and your tongues deliver. Let your sermons be addresses in which Christ's blood, mediation, and intercession, Christ's love, power, and willingness to save, the real work of the Holy Spirit, repentance, faith, and holiness are never lacking. Sermons full of life and fire and power. Sermons which set hearers thinking and make them go home to pray. Then, and then only, will the church have its just influence, and God will open the windows of heaven and give us a blessing. The very best and most elaborate services are only means to an end, and that end should be the salvation of souls. All is not done when people have heard beautiful music and singing, and seen the most ornamental ceremonial. Are their hearts and consciences better? Is sin more hateful? Is Christ more precious? Is holiness more desired? Are they becoming more ready for death, judgment, and eternity every week that they live? And eternity every week that they live. These are the grand ends which every clergyman should set before him in every service which he conducts. 
he should strive to conduct it with an abiding recollection of the eye of God, the sound of the last trumpet, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment, that these may be more and more the aims of every clergyman in the present day is my earnest prayer. I will go ahead and say it. I think this is, I mean, all, a lot of our sermons are very applicable today, but boy, this one really seems to hit the nail on the head. We have beautiful services. Uh, we have these great buildings, as he called them, temples. But it's the same thing, right? We have this amazing music and singing. We have all these very talented speakers. But if God could look at the church today, does he look at us and think, wow, this is really strong. The Church of Christ is doing just super well. Or does he look at what's going on and go, I would give all of that beauty up, all those outward shows up for people who loved me, who followed my word, and who were busy being about uh, my work and, and preaching the gospel to others and, and being about converting sinners. I, I think that J.C. Ryle is absolutely right when he says, that other stuff is good. I do both if you can, but don't, uh, don't miss what's most important don't be like those who are at the temple who had a really great sacrifice system but they were not interested in the savior that was in their midst Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jonathan Clausen. Jonathan Clausen started with Clear Channel Radio in the 90s. Jonathan has worked in audio and marketing for 20 years. Credits include EA Tiburon, Christianity Today, Christian and Pop Culture, and freelance work as voice talent for audiobooks and podcast production services. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts and you haven't gone back and listened to our other episodes on J.C. Ryle, I'm, I'm going to stop here and say you definitely should. Check it out. Uh, but also, if you have or you feel caught up and you feel good and you like what we're doing, you like Revive Thoughts, you like Revived Radio, Revived Devos, Martyrs and Missionaries, and the occasional deep dive, uh, we highly recommend you consider joining us on Patreon. Patreon is a way to support the show with some financial help. It goes a long way to buying equipment doing the things that we need to do. This is Troy and Jill, and this is Revive Thoughts. The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.